Hello and welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that translates Donald J. Trump. Steve Moore joins us as we look at the big second quarter GDP numbers. Boy, it's pretty impressive. Looks like the Trump economy's working. We will dive into it. Also, our good friend Michael Anton will join us to discuss sanctions on North Korea and Turkey. I also want to get his thoughts on Secretary Mike Pompeo. I think he's doing a great job. We'll get Michael Anton's thoughts. He's formerly of the National Security Council. Last but not least, we'll speak with Phil Steele. Yep, folks, it's almost time for football. Phil is the creator of the Phil Steele College Football Preview Magazine. I say that very carefully. Phil Steele College Football Preview Magazine. And he's an ESPN insider. He'll give us a preview of the upcoming college football season. But first, a few things I would like to talk about. We have Steve Moore talking about the economy and the growth of uh, the GDP in the second quarter, and then Michael Anton talking about foreign policy, uh, including some mention of Russia. Uh, I want to put something here in the middle, uh, or a parenthesis, if you will, between these two giant issues of the economy and uh, foreign policy. First of all, you could hear people quoting James Carville all over the place saying, it's the economy, stupid, it's the economy. And if the economy continues to roar... Uh, run high, run well, this will be a big issue in these uh, 2018 elections. I agree. I I think it it will be. Uh, Foreign policy also, uh, and usually doesn't figure at the top, but uh, in the top five, yes. Uh, It only kind of rises to one or two if we think we're facing a crisis. But, you know, there's been a lot of attention to Russia, to North Korea, and as we discussed with Michael Anton, Turkey, Iran, uh, other places. But there's a third issue, and I've been talking about this since you've been listening to this podcast, and that's uh, immigration. The president tweeted about it, and uh, it continues to loom large in his mind. And in my mind, and I believe in your mind, uh, I think it's what's going to get a lot of people to the polls. There will be a number of people who will come because they hate what Trump is doing on immigration policy, though I think many of them misunderstand it. They think he is willfully trying to separate children and parents. Uh, He is not. This is just a horrible situation brought about by the law, uh, which needs to change, but not much hope for legislative accomplishment there or submitting a reasonable proposal to the president. But there are also people who support uh, in the largest form at the the most general level uh, Donald Trump's instincts on on immigration, that we are a sovereign nation, we have borders, they should be respected, uh, and it is not his fault. That this, for example, this separation occurred. It's the fault of the people who came in illegally. And I think he's got a great reservoir of support on this issue. And I think that's going to bring more people to the polls in favor of what he believes than will be brought to the polls by people who oppose. Could be wrong. Don't know. But I just want to signal the importance of that issue. We're not talking about it today explicitly. But it is out there, and I think it is not just an abstraction for a lot of Americans, but um, something at the pit of their belly, the pit of their their political instincts. They know that this is a very, very important question. And they're right. This is all about what it means to be an American, uh, whether we have real borders or not, whether there's such a thing as sovereignty, uh, and whether we're a country. Immigration, again, had been one of the um, pillars, really, of his uh, campaign, yes, you yes, know, sir. and he Correct. always talks about doing something Correct. about it. And it's really important to, to make the distinction that, 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 you know, it's not a willful separation of children and parents. Yeah, no, but I, I think it um, I think it burns hard and a lot of hearts. It does. It does. I think it really matters to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the effect on jobs, the effect on uh, the employment of people at the lower levels of economic uh, security in this country, it's, it's, it's a very, very big deal. But I think the heart of it is what it means to be an American and whether we have a right uh, to call ourselves Americans and act like we have a sovereign country by putting borders there. The wall is still very important to the president. You remember, you, you just reminded us of the place of immigration and the campaign. Remember, many of those rallies, you know, build that wall, build that wall, who right. will pay for it, Mexico. I don't think much chance of Mexico at this point, not in any direct way. But I think this uh, continues to burn uh, very brightly in the minds and hearts of uh, a lot of Trump supporters. We'll see. I'm agnostic on the question of uh, whether the Democrats take the House. I guess the numbers lean that way. Uh, and history leans that way, but we are at a very odd and many ways a historical 
moment with this presidency. It's a very unusual uh, circumstance. We'll we'll get more poll predictions and more 2018 predictions with our friend Sean Trendy and others as we get closer. But I just wanted to remind everybody as we're listening to the importance of the economic issues and uh, what's going on in this dynamite economy uh, and the importance of foreign policy, never far from our minds, and indeed the president's first responsibility, keep the people safe, though there is a keep the people safe aspect to the immigration issue as well. Um, I just wanted to remind people that there's another big, big issue looming, and um, it's going to be very, very important for 2018 and beyond because we don't have legislation, and it looks like we're not going to get any legislation anytime soon to straighten out this immigration mess. Another thing I'd like to raise, I'd like to raise this as a question, Claude, for our listeners. And I'd like people to write us, email us. Okay, and they can email us at BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. BillBennettPodcast mm-hmm. at gmail.com. Yes. That's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Look at that. Higher education, a lot of people talking about it. Worries about free speech, worries about teaching of American history and what America is, not being balanced, tilting to the left, conservative people being silenced, conservative professors not being hired. Do you have a solution to this? What is your solution? Write us, email us one more time, Podcast at gmail.com. You got it. Got it. Mm -hmm. What do you think? What should be done? I have some thoughts on this that I will give you next week on next week's podcast but i'd love your suggestions so please write us tell us what should be done about this what should be done by the consumer the parent the student what should be done by the university should anything be done by the government what about the boards of trustees what else what other players everybody knows it's a problem on a lot of campuses in addition to the high cost of tuition which we are going to be talking about today with steve moore uh, there are other problems, and this relating to how these little republics, as I call them, uh, understand their, their role vis-a-vis the larger republic, the United States. That larger republic, the United States, protects these institutions, allows them to function in the way that they want to function. Uh, they should have a little more respect for that larger republic, don't you think? Write me and tell me what you think should be done with this campus issue this campus problem i'll give you my recommendation i got several but i got one big one and i'll do that next week you're listening to the bill bennett show Show. all right time to talk economics with steve moore steve is the senior economic contributor for freedom works wall street journal economics writer economist at the heritage foundation and founder of the club for growth steve how are you I'm good, Bill. Great to be with you. Well, you had a busy weekend. I think I saw you nine times on TV. <laughs> and uh, because you had to argue the notion that this 4.1% growth in the second quarter was really something. Uh, because every time I saw you, this was being dismissed as ephemeral, not real, a sugar hive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I want to I talk to you about the various objections, but but give us the main the main thrust here. This was a big deal, right? 4.1% growth second quarter. It really was. I mean, you know, I saw the president about a month ago and, uh, you know, we knew that we were going to get a strong number for the second quarter and I just chat with him for a few minutes. And I said, you know, Mr. President, these numbers are coming in stronger than, you know, Larry Kudlow and I and some of your other advisors had even hoped for when we were, you know, putting this together during the campaign. And he just smiled. He said, Steve, you ain't seen nothing yet. But yeah, this is, I'm surprised by how quickly Bill, the economy has responded to these, um, you know, pro-growth policies that Trump has put into effect. And, you know, you're right. I was on a number of times on CNN. And but, you know, my feeling about this is these numbers transcend spin. <laughs> I mean, you can't put a negative spin on this right, stuff. Nice I mean, line. It, mm-hmm. it is so good. I mean, the numbers speak for themselves. And look, the American people know it. You know, one of my favorite statistics, by the way, is that before the election bill, Three out of 10 Americans rated the economy good as gra- good or great. You know what that number is now? What? Almost seven out of 10. Wow, really? really? I mean, that's a gigantic increase. And that means people get it. They understand things are going well. It is, by the way, it's not just the economic growth numbers. Those, those are kind of hard for people to really feel in the 
pocketbook, but you know, the jobs numbers, the wage numbers are showing some improvement. People feel like they can, they're not locked into their current job. If, you know, there's so many job opportunities out there. If you don't like the job you're in now, you can move into another one. Uh, so all of these are an indication the economy is, is right now firing on all cylinders. And I agree with Donald Trump. He took a lot of uh, criticism for this. He said he thinks we can have a couple more years of this. And I'm in complete agreement. There's no reason that this, this role can't continue if uh, if Trump continues with the policies that uh, that are in place now. You mentioned CNN, and you're one of the brave and noble few who still appear on CNN. I I ended my contract with them, but you're you're still hanging in there. Um, it's you, tough. I mean, it's it's I like know. you know going behind enemy territory. No, I know, you know. I know. No and, kidding. But it's worse now. I would say than it was. I mean, I used to watch you all the time on CNN. Uh, but ever since Trump was elected, it's been it's been brutal. I mean, that's the hate Trump network. And it, you know, it is not. You know, for example, you know, we get this great number. Problem. It just makes you proud to be American. And Trump was right that our economy now is the envy of the world. We're growing faster than just about any other uh, you know advanced country today. Um, and and yet the CNN, you know, the ticker they put is, you know, good GDP number. Economists say it can't last. Yeah, no, I noticed. Oh, look, nothing, nothing lasts forever. No, I but noticed. These are the same economists who said we couldn't get here in the first place. Yeah, well, exactly, exactly. No, I, I just, no, I, there's no comparing. When I was at CNN, it was, I was on the wrong side of the French-Indian War. You're at CNN now. You're in Verdun in World War One. I. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's awful. And I see what you have to go through and admire you. And thank you. And who is that great guy on those panels all the time taking a beat? That David Urban? Do you know him? Um, I don't, you don't watch so CNN when you're watch. not on, do you? I do. He's, he's on in the afternoons with, oh, a panel of, you know, Kirsten Powers and right, Amanda sure. Carpenter and uh, some other woman, very liberal. And he just hangs in there with taking the flack from Jake Tapper. But one funny thing about CNN, I watched Friday because I was just curious because that was the day, you know, the morning that the president mm-hmm. released it. And you knew this very well. And you were you were in on meetings with him ahead of time. I watched CNN for how long it would take before they announced it. it uh, they said something at the very beginning, like what you just said. You know, they announced 4.1%, but many economists have doubts. It was 45 minutes before they got to the story. It was all Michael Cohen and, and Donald and Trump and, and, yeah. and, and phone calls. It was, well, it's, I think what's also crazy. interesting, having done that show for the last you know couple of uh, almost two years now, is that um, number one, when there's good economic news, it's not news. Right. Yep. <laughs> number right. number two, you know, I was thinking back, you know, when the good news started rolling in, pretty much at the start of uh, Trump's presidency, and you know, it's so interesting. I mean, that the liberal pundits they keep finding some explanation for why these numbers are good, other than the obvious explanation, which is that Trump's policies may be working here. And so last year, when we got some really good economic numbers, the left line was, number one, this is the expansion of Obama's policies, which is, you know, I think most people don't see that. But number two, they say, well, the the world economy is growing so fast. The United States is just rolling on this tide. But now we've got a situation where actually in 2018, the world economy has slowed down. You know, Europe is not growing. China's really slowed down. Japan's kind of flat. The only country that's really growing right now is the United States. So, you know, last year they said we're only growing because the rest of the world is growing. Now we're growing. The rest of the world isn't. And then they said, oh, this is my favorite one, Bill. They said, well, this is because of the advanced sales of soybeans. Right. Right. And so what I did last night, they kept saying this. So I took out the export numbers. I just took them out of the equation. You know how much the economy grew? Excluding exports, 4.1%. Really? What do you know? What do you know? All right. Which, which piece of it? I, I You won't remember, but I do, because I listened to this very great phone call that uh, you and Larry Kudlow did. You remember back when it was a conference call just on the, on the, on the eve of all this or just when these things were enacted. I can't remember which, but it was this, I think it was after the tax cut. Right, right after the tax cut. Yeah, yeah. And and I asked which piece is gonna are we gonna see having the effect the most the the uh, uh, what do you call it the discounting you know for for uh, oh the uh, I think Larry said it was the expensing of the expensing business. that's what I mean the expensing yeah. or or the tax cut or capital gains whatever yeah. <laughs> is there one piece of it that's been had a more dynamic effect than any other you think. Well, I think, yeah, obviously the business, the, the gemstone of that tax bill was cutting our business tax rates. And, and you know, I've got this book coming out in a couple of months. Um, it'll be out in early October. That oh, I'll be with, sure to call uh, us for a long interview. Yeah. 
<laughs> and we did it with, uh, I mean, I started the book with Larry Kudlow, but he, he has a higher calling in life now, so yep, he couldn't finish yep, it. So yep, I yep. did it with Arthur. But the point of the, the book is called Trumponomics. And it's really about what is, what is Trumponomics about? What is Trump's economic philosophy? And one of the points that we make, it's just an obvious point, but it's missed by a lot of people, is the main thing about Donald Trump that I think has been so pro-growth is that this is a pro-business president. He's pro-business. He wants American businesses right. to succeed. Our small businesses, our big businesses, our corporations. It's part of a putting America first. And I believe more than any single policy bill, whether the expensing, the deregulation, the pro-America, it's the fact that you have the businesses know there's a guy at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue who's not going to whack them over the head okay. you know, well, with tax increases with – yeah, I really think that's the most important thing is that, uh, you know, as my friend Jeb Henseling, who's the head of the Financial Services Committee right. in Congress, put it so well. He said, on November 7, 2016, the beatings stopped. <laughs> I think that's a good summary good, for why good. the economy's picked up. No, that's a, that's a great summary. And, and it wasn't on my list. I said expensing or capital gains or uh, the individual tax cuts. And I, I didn't mention deregulation as well. But what you're saying well, is, is what uh, member Justice, Justice Cardoza said about Supreme Court justice. The most important thing about a Supreme Court justice is his philosophy, is his philosophy, yep. you know, what motivates yep. him. And what you're saying, the most important thing about this economy is this president's psychology, what motivates him. And the beating has stopped. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, number one, we should give tribute to American businessmen and women. I mean, we have the best run companies in the world today. And this is one of the points I've made with the president when it comes to trade, you know, that I, I – uh, I am with him. I want a level playing field and trade. I want, you know, I believe that if you get a level playing field, American companies compete with any country, any country in the world. I'm convinced of that. We have the best, you know, entrepreneurs. We have the best workers. We have the best uh, businesses. And so, uh, you know, we just need a level playing field here. And if you get that. So I just want to say, yes, tr does Trump deserve credit? Yes. But let's not forget the 28 million small businessmen and women who create the jobs in the first place. Yeah, but but they had the lid on them before with, with they did. Obama. Yep. And he lifted the lid, said, go do it, right? Amen, amen. Don't take that call. That's some other podcast person wanting to talk to you. <laughs> and we don't, we don't just ignore everything for the next few minutes, please. Thank you. Uh, okay, uh, since, since you brought this up uh, tangentially, uh, I noticed you were asked a question, and, and, and you were very, I thought, very fair in your, in your answer. Well, <clears throat> could uh, this growth be messed up by tariffs if they go the wrong way? Yep. Uh, yes, it could if it goes the wrong way, right? Yeah, tra you know, free trade is one of the, as Art Laffer says, one of the four pillars of prosperity. And so we want to see free trade. But I'm going to make a point to you, uh, Bill. Another point I think it was missed last week in the media that is really say, important. Yep, so yep. Maybe, may maybe even more important than the economic growth numbers we got. Trump had a big, big win on Wednesday when the Europeans came hand in hand to the 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue to the White House to negotiate a deal on trade. And they made at least in a handshake deal. It's not done yet. But they made some major concessions. They basically agreed to reduce their uh, tariffs on American agriculture, on many of our manufacturing products, on our uh, oil and gas. And this was really missed by the media. The the agreement says that both country, both sides of the Atlantic will agree to try to get to zero tariffs. Now, think about that. This is this is an amazing accomplishment if Trump can pull this off. By the way, the Europeans have higher tariffs than we do. So this is a point that Larry Kudlow and I used to make the president all the time. If we go to zero tariffs, we we're not that far from zero. They're way you know, we're at three percent, you know, they're at their tariffs are two or three times higher. So we relatively, you know, benefit from that. And if Trump can pull that off and then he can get a deal with you know, uh, he's getting he's close to getting a deal with Mexico. Uh, Canada's a bit of a problem, but I think he can get that done. Uh, then what you do is you isolate the bad actor, which is China. And if he's got all these other countries on his you know, if he's got this bilateral trade agreement with all these other countries, I think I think China folds like a like a cheap tent. And I think Trump, before this year is over, and I make this prediction on the Bill Bennett podcast, before this year is out, uh, the leaders in China will come to Washington hat in hand and they will make major trade concessions to uh, President Trump that will reduce tariffs and will reduce their cheating and stealing on intellectual property. And that will cause a 
boom like you never saw in the stock market and the American economy. Wow. And this will follow good deals with the European Union, Mexico, and other countries. And other yeah. Countries. Now, look, yeah. I don't want to get too carried away because it was just a handshake, you know. And what, what yeah, did yeah. we learn? No, no, sure. What did we learn, Bill, from Ronald Reagan? Trust but verify. Right? That's right. That's so, right. You know, these guys sometimes shake their hand and say, yeah, we'll do this. So, we, you know, I don't want to, you know, say this is a sealed deal because Trump is going to have to get validation of this. But if the Europeans do what they said they uh, are going to do, we're going to see lower tariffs. Now, what's so interesting about that is Donald, the, see, the media and the liberals don't get Donald Trump. You know this. I know this. He's a deal maker. He's a negotiator. Right, His right. best selling book is The Art of the Deal. He used the threat of these tariffs to force these other countries to reduce their tariffs. That's yeah. a free trade outcome. Yeah, no, that's that's right. And this uh, this really is in his bones too, isn't it? I mean, he he just he's so when you hear hear him on the stump about these are the worst deals we've made. I mean, nobody makes deals like we've made. He is bound and determined to change the regimen here. He is, and look, I don't always agree with Donald Trump on on trade. In fact, he and I have had some arguments about this, uh, but. Ultimately, you know, when I used to say, Donald, you know, the, the, I used to call him Donald before he was president. <laughs> I'd say, you know, the, you're, these are protectionist policy states. Steve, I'm not a protectionist. I believe in free trade. I just want to get better deals. And, you know, I have to say, I've come around to his way of thinking on this because I see him winning. You know, <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, when the strategy works, you stick with it. Yeah, yeah, good. Uh, is, the, is the economy potentially strong enough? To, because I heard Larry Kudlow saying yesterday on TV, saying on Sunday, or rather, that we're going to have short deficits in the short term. You got, you know, got to pay for stuff. But in the long term, we're going to have tremendous growth. Uh, is there any way to shorten that timeline? A, <laughs> B, um, can, can we can we outgrow yeah. deficits? Or, uh, you know, a thing I've always been concerned about is the entitlement thing. I'm a sure. Ryan guy in that sense. I think the entitlements yeah. are just a huge obstacle to economic growth. I understand the politics of this, if, as you said to me before we started, and I'll just repeat yeah. it. If the president had talked about any of this while campaigning, we wouldn't be referring to him as president. But nevertheless, Social Security, Medicare, you know, these things are huge drains. Put aside the question of um, working on those entitlements directly. Can a great economy uh, outgrow the drag of those entitlements? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We learned that in the 90s when Clinton was president, you know, and we had, you know, a new Gingrich's speaker and uh, we uh, didn't. Made, well, we made some progress in cutting spending. I got to give uh, Newt some credit on that. You know, sure. we did we did reduce spending. But what really happened in the '90s, you may recall, at the end of the '90s, we actually had budget surpluses, and nobody expected that to happen. Um, and what happened was the economy grew so rapidly at the end of the '90s that the you know the flood of revenues that come in when you have more people working and businesses more profitable, it you know the revenues caught up to the spending. Now, is that going to happen now? Well, we got such out of control spending. I don't think the revenues are going to catch up with spending, but we're going to get, I think that we're going to see some really healthy revenue growth numbers, by the way, that's in the wake of the tax cuts. So I think the Laffer curve is going to be proven correct again, where you have lower rates and you're going to get more revenues. That's going to help. You cannot, you cannot reduce the budget deficit unless you have growth. It's that simple. Right. Growth is really a precondition to getting anything done. Now, it's it's a necessary, but it's probably not a sufficient condition. <laughs> you know, that means we are going to have to get a lid on spending. Uh, by the way, this year, as you and I learned when we had dinner this week with uh, Mick Mulvaney, as he, he pointed out that right now, actually, the entitlement spending is growing at about 6%, but the other programs are growing at about 10 or 11%. So right, right now, it's the other programs that's the problem. And and by the way, both the Republicans and Democrats in Congress want to spend more money on those programs. So, so it's tough. It's a tough thing to get the Congress to cut wasteful spending. Yeah. And, you know, and one thing we really have to uh, get after, and this, you'll know, excuse me, as we say, every anthropologist loves his own tribe. Have you ever heard that expression? Yeah, right. I <laughs> like know, that one. Yeah, but you from your own field, but I'm talking about education. Student loans, you know, the largest single, and I love this, this is what you got to explain to me as an economist, the largest single asset listed on the government's assets is $1.5 trillion in unpaid student <laughs> loans. Why the hell is that called an asset? 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. I mean, what, you know, what percentage of those loans are going to be repaid? It's like, you know, the Federal Reserve Bank owns all these mortgages that they, you know, that these are defaulted mortgages that they hold on their books. And, you know, they they say those are assets, too. Does anybody think that the you know yeah. mortgages from the early in two thousands are ever going to get repaid? Right. But so see, uh, that's of, a good one. No, but some of these things are just getting worse, and there's no reason for something like the student loan thing to get worse. Get the private sector again. Uh, you know, this was well. Taken you know, the away biggest the issue. Sector. Go ahead. You were the head of the uh, education department, um, and uh, to me, the biggest scam in America. Really, truly, the biggest financial scam in America is how much our colleges and universities are charging American families. It is such an outrage. And and Moore's theorem on this, I wonder if you agree with this, that there's no reason every university in the country, with a few exceptions, couldn't cut their tuition in half. Yep, I I do. Moore's theorem. Son of a gun. Now you're competing with me. I (laughs) just... No, I discovered. Three, I'm serious. No, I. Re- My I son dis- goes to Northwestern. It's, it's like sixty thousand dollars a year. No it's kidding. just ridiculous. And they have an There's endow- no reason it can't cost thirty. They have an endowment, don't they? Uh, yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah. It, it, there's twenty five schools, Bill. We yeah. just did this research with Rich Vetter. You know Rich Vetter, sure, the great. Very house. well, Rich Vetter. We, sure. We found that there, that twenty five schools in the country have endowments so large now that they could give free tuition to every student, to every kid yeah. entering. Yep. From from now until forever, and they still wouldn't run out of money. Absolutely, no. A vetter's a gem. Good for you. No, I got to tell you though, this point of pride because we got we got Moore's theorem. There's something called the Bennett hypothesis. Did you know? Okay. Ever hear of that? I, I didn't know. I formulated hypothesis. This was just, <laughs> what is it? It goes way back. You'll love this because this is this gets two worlds at once. I said when I was Secretary of Education, you know, one thing we need to do is reduce all this money we're sending from the federal government because the more money the federal government sends, the higher the schools raise their tuition. Now I reduced it to a simpler version. I did a did a kind of uh, Occam's razor, and actually the colleges continue to increase their tuition no matter what because parents will keep paying. If you want your kid to go to Northwestern, you'll pay and you'll borrow and you'll put Granny to work mm-hmm. and you'll put the kids to work, put the dog, you know, pulling a sleigh, whatever, to pay that tuition because they 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 raise it because they can. Not because yep. they need to. Well, it turns out, so that's Steve. Bill, that's Bill Bennett. What do you call it, Bennett? The Bennett hypothesis. But turns because out, I, Steve, this has been great. a subject of analysis by economists in the universities, wasting just the money I'm talking about, to, <laughs> to examine the truth of this. And three years ago, the conclusion was Bill Bennett was right. I could have told you that 25, 30 years ago. Anyway. Well, it's so for, funny because I've been, funny, yeah. I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know it was Bennett's hypothesis. For God's sakes, refer study. to it now. Now with capital letters. I will B-A- because I've always every speech I give I say the more the, every time we increase student loans and grants and Pell grants the the universities turn around and raise their tuition so it's like a dog chasing its tail. Yeah, and you call it Moore's theorem. I tell you, I'm going to take you to court. Really, this is crazy. <laughs> no, mine is different. I'm saying every university in America could cut their tuition yeah, in right. half and still have a high quality. Because think, I mean, look, the average tenured professor makes two hundred sixty thousand dollars a year. Do you know how much the how many hours the average tenured professor teaches a week? Uh, no, four. 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 Yeah. Uh, well, I remember when it was six. I remember when it was six, and I said this on the radio. I said the average teaching load for a professor is six, and a caller called in and said, well, you know, it's not terrible, six hours a day. That's not a terrible. It's a real workload. Six <laughs> hours a, a week. A <laughs> <Right>. week. <laughs> yeah. No, you are right. No, you, you are you are absolutely you're By the way, my right. favorite school, I'm going to do a quick yep. uh, promotion. Do you know College of the Ozarks? Uh-huh. Do you know what the tuition is there? Nope. Guess. Uh, 44,000. Zero. Right. You know why? Why? You should go out there. If you haven't been out there, I, I had the best time of, I, I go to dozens of college campuses every year. The best students I ever met. College Ozarks charges zero tuition a year. You're all trying to think, how can they get away with paying zero? You know why? Wow. Every kid on campus works 15 to 20 hours a week. There you go. There you go. What a concept. A 19 year old could actually work while they're in school. You mean they clean the dorms and stuff? They do everything. Yeah, every they don't they every they clean the dorms, they cook the food, they have their own farm there. They, and, and you know what? There's nothing better than having a 20, 21 year old working while they're in school. Yeah, yeah. Okay, not at Northwestern, huh? 
Yeah, you know, it's just, it's killing me. Okay. It's killing me. I know, I know. I know. <laughs> I've been there. I've been there. All right, let's get back. Let's get back on the main track. Very, very grateful to you for your prediction. I certainly, I certainly hope you're right. Just the last question. Um, and I, I'll, I'll warn you, I already, I already made a prediction here. How big will this be for 2018? Can this hold this, the House uh, for the Republicans, the, the growth of the economy? And I guess I had a prior question. The third well, quarter, the third quarter numbers will be out just before the election. Will they yeah. be good? Will they be in the fours or threes? Could we have a more prediction there? <laughs> okay, so we just started the third quarter. So yeah, I think we're going to be in the three to four percent range for the third quarter, and because business investment is so strong right now, uh, how that's going to affect the elections? You know, I don't. Have, you know, I know look, I know. the party out of power. You know, the Democrats are riled up right now. They're energized. You see, who's this new superstar they have? This woman from New York who's preaching socialism all over the country. Oh, crazy. Uh, you know, so, yeah. but but look, I did look at the numbers, Bill. Back going back sixty years. Anytime there's an economy growing three or four percent, the you know the party in power doesn't lose major numbers of seats because right. people feel good about things. Right. They don't want to, you know. We always remember when in 1994 and in 2010 and 2014 off your election, we ran on change, right? But you think about this: in 1998, Republicans had an off year election uh, because Bill Clinton was president, and every saw Republicans didn't pick up all these seats. Republicans didn't pick up seats. Why? The economy was growing at four percent. People thought, thought things were going pretty well. Yeah, no. So you got counter indicators, right? You got the uh, uh, you got the midterms for the party that's out of power with the president and the other party, and uh, they, they tend to gain seats. But then you got this other indicator you just mentioned: when the economy's growing at three or four percent, it's good for the party in power. Do I have that right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, people. People feel good. As I said, seven out of ten Americans feel the economy's in the right. You know, okay. the economy's going well. Even the numbers. You know, the best number for you to look at. You know, in terms of how, how Republicans will do in these midterms is keep track of the tracking number on whether the whether Americans think the direction of the country is. In the yep. right direction yep. or wrong direction. Yep. Those numbers still need some improvement, but they've shown a up. lot of improvement. Yeah, and that's why that's why Hillary lost. On the day of the election in 2016, less than 30 percent of the Americans thought the country was going in the right direction. Yeah. Now it's in the 40s, right? I think so. Yeah. It's good enough. All right. Listen, I just want to close with this uh, from a different world. In Shakespeare's uh, tragedies, uh, it depends a lot who the king's advisors are, the people who whisper in the king's ear. It really makes makes all the difference. And I want to thank you, because you have been whispering in Donald Trump's ear, you and Larry Kudlow and others, for a long time on this. I know you were reinforcing views that he already had, but it was important for him to hear that. And we want to thank you for your influence on his thinking, which has made such a difference to the country. Well, thank you, Bill. And I'll just say this in closing. You know, uh, you're, you're right, though. Donald Trump, who's never been in politics before, uh, he has the best instincts on not just politics, but just how an economy works. Because, he, you know, we've got a businessman who's president. That's why he won. He knows how to meet a payroll. He knows how to grow a business. He knows how to grow an economy. And, yep. you know, Barack Obama, you know, for all his assets, I mean, he's an incredibly charismatic person. He was a community organizer. He didn't know anything yeah, about business. Right, right, right. And you, by the way, are a very good party planner. I mean, you have a dinner planned, and then our guest of honor can't show at the dinner. <laughs> so you have an, yeah. a substitute, and then you have special appearances by Janine Pirro, who comes in and mm. complains that I never go on her show. And then Corey <laughs> Lewandowski comes in. I mean, you you could be an event planner if things don't work out in the economy. <laughs> yeah, we pulled that, we pulled that out of the fire. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that was sure a great did. night. Thank you very much, Steve. Okay. God Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. That was Steve Moore, Senior Economic Contributor for FreedomWorks, Wall Street Journal economics writer, economist at the Heritage Foundation, and a founder of the Club for Growth. Steve, thank you for joining us today. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Joining us now is Michael Anton. He's a former senior national security official in the Trump administration. Currently, he is a writer and lecturer at Hillsdale College's Kirby Center. Michael, thanks so much for joining us again. We got rave reviews on your last appearance, and we really appreciate it. Oh, great. Glad to hear that. I'd like, I'd like to get your sense of, uh, you know, what's, what's, what's interesting that you've seen. You've got a better eye and uh, more acumen on this than uh, acumen on this than we do in terms of foreign policy. But let me start not with the obvious countries, as I call them, Russia, China, North Korea, but two others. The thing that's emerged lately in the news is this situation with Turkey 
and or, or threatening sanctions. Uh, Erdogan not backing off. This is, I guess, uh, occasioned by this uh, case of the minister from North Carolina right. who they won't release. What's going on there? This actually goes back quite a ways. Um, behind the scenes, you know, we haven't heard much about it lately because it went public, but this is something that a lot of conservatives in Congress, a lot of religious leaders and others in the country have been asking the U.S. government to put pressure on Turkey to get this pastor out. And the president has been raising it privately in phone calls and in meetings with Erdogan, hoping to make some headway privately. Uh, I think he was pretty patient about it for a long time. Um, But Erdogan chose to link two completely unrelated cases. So there's uh, one of his former political associates, that is one of Erdogan's former political associates, now an enemy, uh, at least according to Erdogan, is a guy named Falula Gulen, who lives in the United States, in Pennsylvania, I believe. And Erdogan thinks that he is, or accuses him of having been behind the uh, coup attempt in 2016 and wants him extradited to Turkey, where, you know, we're pretty confident bad things would happen to the guy, whatever he may or may not have done. We don't think he would get a fair trial. And, you know, we're just (laughs) so he says, "Okay, you want me to release this pastor who I'm I'm essentially holding hostage, who didn't do anything? Well, you give me this guy who I, you know, may do Lord knows what with on trumped up charges. And we say they're two completely separate cases. We don't have any evidence that Gulen is, or at least we don't have sufficient evidence to extradite him for any kind of crime. Um, so we, you know, we've said, you know, we're not going to do that. We're not, we don't see them as linked. We don't see them as equivalent. And he basically, his position is, okay, you don't give me that guy. I'm not giving you your pastor back. So essentially he has a U.S. citizen hostage over there on trumped up charges as a way to put pressure on the United States. And the United States isn't playing along. That's what's going on. And now it's out in public. And I think, you know, President Trump was pretty patient with him. I was on several of the phone calls with Erdogan on this. I heard them talk about it. I heard the president make the case for releasing the pastor. Pastor, I think his name is Brunson. Right. Um, and Erdogan would, would pretty bluntly just say, OK, you give me my guy. I'll give you your guy. And the president said, I'm not doing that. Okay, but they did. Did they go halfway in releasing him from prison? Um, yeah, my understanding is they they went part way, uh, but they 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 sort of vacillating and going back and forth with him. I mean, the point is, we learned to just come home. Right. The United States position is this: this man has committed no crime, uh, and I think you know the details of the case. I don't remember as clearly as I used to, but I think he had been in the country for a long time, oh, yeah, yeah, performing yeah. ministerial missions. Never had a problem. You know, never run into any issues, and all of a sudden he gets swept up, which just further, you know, suggests that yeah. there's something fishy about it all. What is what they say, by the way, just parenthesis, uh, is what they say about Turkish prisons true? That these are not good places? <laughs> that I do not know. Okay. You know, like a lot of people, I've seen Midnight Express. Yeah, Midnight That's Express, kind of trying to think of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of my... The uh, upper limit of my knowledge of okay. Turkish prisons, but okay. if they're if they're anywhere as bad as Midnight Express, then they're a place you don't want to be. What's what's the what's our leverage in terms of sanctions? Do we have a lot? Because the president said well, he's going to impose sanctions. We do, we do less than we used to, and that's just because under the Erdogan regime, uh, he got elected, I think, for the first time in two thousand two. So he's been there for a while. Uh, Turkey's been drifting out of our orbit. Uh, increasingly, they, they're drifting away from the United States. Away, they're still formally a member of NATO. They've been drifting away from the NATO alliance, away from Europe, toward Russia, and also toward the more openly Islamist parties in the Middle East. So, you know, the the, the sanction threat could cost them, but in the long run. Erdogan is likely to conclude, well, I, I don't see the United States and the West as reliable partners anyway. And, you know, his own view of, of the world, where Turkey's place is in the world, is that it should be more aligned with Russia and more aligned with, you know, our adversaries in the Middle East. All right. So, hang on there. I mean, more aligned with Russia and our adversaries. But are they are in, uh, indeed, are they not a member of NATO? They are a member of NATO. I think what's going on here is complicates so it a Turkey, little bit. Was, Turkey was kind of half-promised, not ever explicitly promised, but sort of kind of implicitly promised EU membership. And there came a point when the EU decided, this is a bad idea and we're never going to do it. And they never told, they never formally said it won't ever happen. They just sort of put it on the shelf implicitly. And the Turks eventually figured it out that it was never going to happen. I think that that was an insult that stung pretty badly. And it left the question open as to whether Turkey, in Turkish minds, whether Turkey really belongs in the Western alliance, if it could be in one club but not in the other. Could, could, they leave NATO? So, could they leave NATO? Could we throw them out of NATO? Are they paying their 2%? Uh, 
they could leave. There, there's no mechanism within NATO to kick a country out. Okay. That would be unprecedented. Okay. I, there's no, although I don't see any reason why NATO could not come together in council and decide to do it. I find that very, very unlikely. It would be far more likely for Turkey to conclude it's no longer in their interest than to leave. Okay. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, that would be a dramatic step. I think I think that's where Erdogan's heart is. I think he would like to get out of NATO and like to just make a clean break and, you know, try to reorient Middle East politics with, you know, Turkey is a very large country. It's a much more powerful country than most of uh, all the other uh-huh. countries in the Middle East. It, he thinks it could be, as it was during the time of the Ottoman Empire, once again, a kind of political, military, economic, yeah. cultural center of the Islamic world. I think that's his long game for the country. Well, this doesn't augur well from what you're saying, I, I, I gather my conclusion is Brunson may be there a while. He may be there a while. Look, Erdogan, the problem that we have is he, he's really not, he's not a friend anymore. Yeah. He's trying, now the, the country's a different story. The country's divided. There's still a lot of pro-Western elements in the country. Military still very much wants to be a part of NATO, sees itself as being a part of NATO. There are secular elements in the country as well as more traditional religious elements in the country. So, if, you know, you can't speak for a single turkey but we can we know kind of what's on erdogan's mind and erdogan's mind is he'd like to see turkey drift away perhaps maybe even at some point formally break with the western alliance and reposition itself as i said the political cultural economic uh, center of the islamic world as it was you know for you know half a millennium almost from the capture of constantinople in 1453 yeah. to the fall of the ottoman empire in world war one yeah uh, you know he'd like to get that back or some semblance of it. What about this? Maybe a goofy question, irrelevant. What about the Armenians and the Turks? Um, I mean, that's uh, a fraught question. You know, yeah. the, uh, bad blood going back to Forever. an attempted genocide yeah. in the World War One years. Uh, Armenians believe that the Turks never formally acknowledged it, have never apologized for it, and are, and are still in kind of a denial. And the Turks, of course, are in denial something that gets fought over a lot. Uh, I have never looked into it with any great care, but to the extent that I have, you know, the Armenian claim seems basically correct to me. And, and uh, you know, it's no, it's in a way, it's it's not a whole lot different from historical guilt questions el- elsewhere uh, yeah, in the world. And some yeah, countries do a yeah. good job of owning up to it and trying to move on, and some don't. You know, I mean, Germany is a good example of a country that's owned up to it. Uh, and Japan is an example of a country that's, you know, maybe still... Yeah. Has owned up to some, but is still very touchy on other points, yeah. and yeah. Uh, and and just won't won't acknowledge uh, what they did. All right, fully, since, since anyway. you took me seriously on that question, I'll compound it here and ask a question on top of that. Uh, you, you maybe followed some of this discussion on TV about Montenegro, and if you know Montenegro's right, you know. So if the Armenians decide they've really just had it and they they attack Turkey, unlikely, would we have to defend Turkey by the NATO alliance? According to the charter of the NATO alliance, we would have to defend Turkey. I don't think it would be necessary because I think the Turkish military yeah. is so strong, it yeah. wouldn't have any problem okay. Uh, okay. defeating a kind of Armenian incursion. But yes, you know, the NATO, uh, the articles of NATO, Article 5 says an attack on one is an attack on all. Um, that's subject, I think, to practical limits in the sense that, you know, you, you, you wouldn't call for help. Presumably, unless you needed it, and they're absolutely capable of dealing with something like that. Okay. All right, good. So I, we're not optimistic here about Turkey, then, and the release of Brunson and our sanctions at limited effect is your worry. Well, yeah. I mean, the sanctions could bite. They could economically bite. I just think that I'm thinking more long-term. I'm not so optimistic about Turkey long-term. I think Erdogan definitely wants to take it in a different direction. And and he's taken steps, you know, to okay. to um, extend and consolidate his power. Um, you know, it, it doesn't look like he's going anywhere anytime soon. Even though he is elected, it seems like he's going to be in for life. He passed a referendum that gave him new powers. Uh, so you know, you, you can't rule anything out. It's possible. Like I said, there's enough public sentiment in Turkey that wa- that doesn't want to see the country go in this direction. Uh, but it would require people who hold those views to ascend to positions of leadership, and Erdogan has done a lot of work to make sure that they can't ascend to positions of leadership. So right. I, I'm pessimistic about the long-term future of Turkey, at least as regards with, of its orientation toward the West. All right, let's not go far. Let's go to, let's go to Iran. There, there has been some discussion lately, and I just am not up on this, about another agreement with Iran. That is the president attempting to have another agreement with Iran to replace instead of the uh, Obama agreement? I think he's just signaled that he's open to it. 
which is fine. I'd be open to it, too, if I were him. The, the issue is, which I'm sure he knows, is the Iranians are not going to be open to it. <laughs> so I think it's an academic question. There's no way they're going to want to sit down with a Trump. I, at least I don't see that they're going to want to sit down with the Trump administration, do a new deal. The reason they sat down with the Obama administration, and that was very difficult to get them to sit down, was because they knew that the Obama administration had a very, yeah. you know, I, I hate to put it this way, but I don't see another phrase will do. They had an essentially pro-Iranian outlook. They wanted yeah. they wanted a deal badly. The Iranians knew they could get the better of such a deal. And so they didn't even with all that, they still were difficult about it. I think they know that the Trump administration would not want to get a deal badly. It would come in with a much more skeptical outlook about Iran and it would drive a much harder bargain. And so I think the Iranians say there's nothing in it for us. You know, well, and they just wouldn't they just wouldn't countenance uh, any kind of meeting or talk. Does this uh, exchange uh, between our president and their leader uh, mean anything? This, you know, you, you'll see hellfire like you've never seen before and don't threaten us and so on. I mean, I think it's it's just a restatement. You know, President Trump gets he gets a lot of criticism when he when he says things like that. All he's really doing, though, is restating conventional deterrence concepts in sure. you know, louder and more colorful language than we're used to. Sure. You know, we're used to supposedly presidents are supposed to use deterrent language in words and phrases so guarded and muted that they could almost mean anything. You're not really they're not really clear what that they mean. President Trump says, no, I'm going to restate it in a way that you can't possibly not know what I mean. And okay. it freaks okay. a certain type of people out. They but it's it. not different than fundamental concepts that have guided American foreign policy for decades. Yeah. OK. OK. Um, let's let's go on then to the, the bigger stage. Well, I don't know. It's bigger, but it seems to be bigger theater. Do you worry that on this all this Russia stuff, Russia, 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 collusion, 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 quite apart from the merits, whether there's anything there or not, that all this attention to Russia we may be heeding what uh, candidate Romney said in the debate with uh, with Obama, which Obama then dismissed. But do you worry that it's obscuring, which is what I take it the much larger and more consequential threat to our security, which is uh, a China that's continuing to grow? I do. I do worry about that. I mean, I think, look, it's it, Russia is an adversary. It's not an enemy anymore, and certainly not in the sense that it was in the Cold War. It's an adversary, but it's an adversary with a limited ability to actually harm our interests. I mean, we're freaking out over a country that, you know, in the mid-1980s, there was a real prospect, or actually really from the 40s all the way to the end of the Cold War, there was a genuine prospect that the Soviet Union would invade and occupy Western Europe. That's a real threat to our interests, right? right. Um, they can't do that now. Uh, there's things that they can do that are bad. But they're, they're, they're much less grave than, than the threats that they posed in the 80s, with one exception, basically meaning a large nuclear arsenal. But, you know, once nuclear arsenal is the kind of thing that once you lose it, no matter the outcome, in a sense, you've already lost. Everybody's already lost. So while that's a threat, you know, I, I think the problem is the spectrum of Russian threats in between election meddling and spying and stuff like that and nuclear annihilation is kind of ineffective. So they can either do the low-grade stuff, which they do. Or they can do something all out, which I don't think it's very likely that they'll do. Or they don't have a whole lot of options in the middle. And that's what I say when I mean that Russia is not that great of a, of a threat, as, as certainly as China, as you point out. Whereas China is a much greater economic and even espionage threat. But, you know, the country, or at least the intelligentsia, the media, and so on, and, and the political left have decided to have a collective freakout and get more exercised yeah. about Russia than certain people on the left ever were during the height of the Cold War. And that's the great irony of this, is yeah. you're hearing all of these liberals and leftists talk about Russia in such hyperbolic terms when they actually had giant tank divisions poised to invade the heart of Western Europe. You know, you had a good portion, maybe even a majority of the left saying, there's nothing really wrong. Uh, there's no, you know, the Cold War is a misunderstanding, as Reagan put it, right? The Cold War is a giant misunderstanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, you know, I, I, I noticed, uh, apart from almost everybody who went to Aspen and seemed to melt in Aspen, you know, under the charm of uh, Andrea Mitchell or somebody, I, w I was just so upset to hear all that uh, what does what does John Locke say? It, it's a, a virtue that we want, hard virtue, and not the subtle arts of shifting. Shifting. There was yeah. a lot of shifting going on in Aspen. You get there, it's a beautiful environment. Liberals, they're pleasing you, they're smiling at you, and I, I thought I saw some trimming, if not shifting. 
uh, on the part of some of our uh, leaders. But one one guy, who, and I think he did some shifting too, uh, who didn't, at least on this issue, was Christopher Wray. I was surprised to hear this, but when he was asked about the threat of Russia, he said, oh, by far, China is a much bigger threat. We have yeah. problems with China in every state. We have investigations going on in every yeah. state. So at least he seems to recognize that. Yeah, well, I, which is good. I mean, there's nobody in, I don't think there's anybody in the national security bureaucracy who ever has a chance to look at the evidence who doesn't realize that okay. China is a far greater threat to American interests than Russia. That's not to say that they don't take Russia seriously. They do. Um, I think they just, they don't go to the extreme lengths of what these, you know, lefty commentators do to, are saying today. And the, what the lefty commentators are saying, I think it's just, it's basically Trump Trump. Right. If they sure didn't have if there weren't if Hillary Clinton had won the election, the Russia meddling would be blip. People would talk about it. They'd say, well, Russia tried to do it. Didn't have any effect. Um, you know, and, and they would just move on. It's a it's a club with which to bash President Trump. And that's why all of these all of these left wing commentators have gotten Cold War religion, unfortunately. Um, you know, um, a quarter century after the Cold War incident, they finally said it more than yeah, a quarter century. Even. Michael, I was scanning my uh, the news stuff this morning. I don't know if you saw it, but there's some columnist in the L.A. Times who said, yep, I'm just going to say it. You're darn right there's a question about Donald Trump's legitimacy. You know, and they and yeah. wrote a long op-ed about this. And, of course, Russia figures prominently in that. Just a comment. Go ahead. Don't, don't Let me break your chain. Uh, well, I mean, look, if you if – you, I, I wrote this in a – in an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal last week, all we know, okay, there may be more evidence, but the only public evidence that, that, that we've seen, that we've been allowed to see, is, is it's not, I'm not saying it's not convincing that the Russians did it, but it's not convincing that it had an effect, right? So what, is, what, what did the Russians do? Well, they bought some Facebook ads. They, they spent a few hundred grand. They sponsored some troll farms. They had some people create fake accounts and fake social media accounts and write fake stories and pretend to be people they weren't to influence online debates. You total it all up, as a couple of analysts have done who have really studied this with care, and the allegation only amounts to about a $10 million spend. Now, like I said, this is what we know publicly. This is what people have been willing to make public. Maybe there's more that's still secret and classified. We don't know. But you compare that $10 million. I mean, I think formally Hillary Clinton's campaign spent um, around slightly less than eight hundred million. That's not counting super PACs and all the and party spending and all of the other stuff that was spent on her behalf. Ten million is just not going to move the needle in the face of the gigantic tidal wave of money and effort spent by people in the you know actual Americans to influence the American election. And then the other thing is, well, they hack. Uh, they're accused of hacking the, the emails of the DNC. So we know somebody hacked them, and we know they got made public because nobody at the DNC ever denied that those emails were genuine. Um, I, I, I'm not saying I don't believe that the was hacked by the Russians. I am saying, though, that you and I don't have a basis for saying that we know that because we're just told that by assertion. We're not shown the evidence. The evidence is kept secret for reasons of sources and methods that I understand. But it's also very interesting to, to see the media and the left absolutely insist that this is the truest truth spoken in our time, that Russia meddled in the election. The, the same media that used to be very, very skeptical of the intelligence community and indeed of anything the government tried to tell them to take yeah. on faith and yeah. to say, ah, you know, no, I need to see proof. Well, they've never seen proof of this and they don't seem to care. They just take it on faith that it's true. And they essentially call you a denier and, you know, a, a, a fabulist if you say, well, I haven't seen the evidence, so I'm not really sure. Okay, so I'll say to the media, yeah, I, I believe the intelligence community when it's saying it was Russia who hacked the DNC's emails. But you guys have to admit, you, the media, have to admit that you don't know, and I don't know. We're just yeah. taking it on faith. And then the, the final point is, I really – look, the election turned fundamentally on three states – Four, if you if you want to include Ohio, although Ohio has been more in play for Republicans sure, recently than sure. Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. So you could say it turned on three states. How many votes in those states do you think flipped because they read John Podesta's emails? Yeah. My guess is zero, right? Yeah, that's my <laughs> Certainly guess. not the the seventy five or you know in seventy five thousand in Pennsylvania, the twenty thousand, you know, it, it flipped Michigan and Wisconsin. I, I don't think it was the that many. So to say that it had an actual material impact uh, on the on the outcome of the election, I think is absurd. It has absolutely had a material impact on the political conversation in the United sure, States, sure. which, you know, if I were Putin, I would say, so let's say he spent $10 million. I don't think for his 10 million, he thought he was going to get this big of an effect. 
I mean, if you're sitting in Moscow, I spent $10 million. How does it look to you? You'd say, I spent $10 million, and the Americans have been clawing their, their, their respective eyes out for 18 months over this question. Yeah. He basically, for that $10 million, he bought CNN, yeah, metaphorically. Yeah. <laughs> all, all they do is talk about Russia collusion, meddling, Russia investigation. Yeah, right. I, Putin would say, this is the biggest bargain of my entire life. If I had known I was going to get this much, I would have spent $100 million. ROI. Spent ROI was big on this, huh? The yeah. ROI was enormous on this. So that's, <laughs> okay. what, that's what Trump means when he says that this is a fraud, it's making us look like a fool, and it's tearing the country apart. People get so outraged by those comments, but he's absolutely right. This is, we're doing this to ourselves. The real, the, 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 the healthy reaction from a country that gets a certain information operation played against it, like we got from the Russians, is to point it out and laugh it off and say, do you clowns think that this is going to affect the mighty democracy of the United States of America? You spent a lot more money on Cold War propaganda during the 20th century to convince us of the glories of socialism and that the conquest of Eastern Europe was right and just. And we didn't believe any of that either. Why do you think we're going to believe this? That's That's the healthy reaction, just to point at it and laugh at it. Instead, we've been clawing our eyes out over it. Like I said, I think Putin must be delighted by that. All right. Listen, we'll we'll leave it there. I want to put down a uh, request, though, for the next couple of weeks to – to revisit with you, visit with you again, talk about China and where the flashpoints oh. are there. Is that okay? Yeah. Great. This was terrific, Great. Michael, as always. All thank right. you very, very much. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. All right, that was Michael Anton. He's a former senior national security official in the Trump administration. He is at present a writer and lecturer at Hillsdale College's Kirby Center. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Okay, folks, this is part one of my interview with Phil Steele, who is the expert guru on college football. It's coming up now, right now. And part two will be next week. And then we're going to get a part three in late August, just before kickoff. And I am back in sitting in my chair watching football. Okay. Folks, one of the highlights of my year, Phil Steele of the Phil Steele Football Preview and uh, an ESPN insider. If I'm talking to Phil Steele, football season can't be far away. Hi, Phil. Hey, Bill. How the heck are you today? <laughs> I'm, I'm okay, but it's been a long winter and a long spring, and it feels like a long summer. My gosh, when when do we get going here with this season? Yeah, luckily it's uh, there'll be some games in August as usual, and uh, but the bulk of the season probably starts uh, on August the thirtieth, is or the, it's the first Thursday, and then uh, September first, the first full Saturday. Right, right, right. And Phil Steele, folks, of course, is the uh, the famous uh, and uh, very well deserved reputation. Uh, as uh, doing the most accurate magazine for over 20 years. That magazine is available now uh, at newsstands, if there are still newsstands, and Walmart and Books A Million. And where else, Phil, do people get it? Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, CBS, Publix, Target, Walgreens, Walmart, places like that across the country. And uh, they are on sale now, but get them early because they sell out pretty quick. That's amazing. It is just amazing. All right, I got mine early, and uh, let's get let's get to it. I want to start right at the top. And what I want to do is run through your your top uh, your preseason top forty. I want to run through the first five or six, and then ask you a couple other questions. Is that okay? That sounds great to me, Bill. Okay, number one, you have what a shock, Alabama. <laughs> yeah, going way out on a limb there. Huh? All right, well, you know, but yeah, look- one one has to do it, right? That's right. When you when you look at Alabama, they normally come in about 110, uh, number 100 on my experience chart. This year they come in at number 50. They've got two capable quarterbacks and two at Tonga Viola and Jalen Hurts, one of the best running back cores in the country. Naturally, all three units on defense rank in my top 10. Special teams is solid. And when you plug in their schedule this year, the toughest road game is at LSU, a team that only has 10 returning starters. Alabama is going to be a double digit favorite in every single game this year so pretty easy to plug them in there at number one once again gotcha who will start uh Tua or uh, Hurts, yeah. Jalen Hurts. I think it's going to be Tua Tonga Viola that uh, gets the starting job, and he's going to give them a little bit more of a downfield passing <laughs> game than what they had. I don't know if he's going to be as careful with the ball as Hurts was. Hurts had a seventeen to one ratio, but uh, I, I think there'll be a Tua. But what a backup to have uh, sitting on the bench there, and Jalen Hurts. You said uh, you wrote. Uh, I've been all through the magazine. I mean, if you get to everything in magazine, it's like reading the works of Charles Dickens. I mean, there's a lot in this magazine. <laughs> 
Are you making the print smaller and smaller to get more information in it? You got so much information in there. We actually have got the print. Uh, I remember it was about oh ten years ago. We got down to seven point type, and that was just too small. So we try to use a minimum <laughs> of eight point type now. So it's uh, oh, it's it is readable. small, but it's getting a little larger. It's very readable. But you said something somewhere about what, what a flick of the left wrist or something that uh, won the national championship that long pass in in, uh, in overtime by Tua. Plus that running play where he evaded the the Georgia defense, right? That was a turning point, too, in that game. Yeah, on third down, it was a a huge play. And if he took a sack there, coming off an interception previous (laughs) drive, who knows, he may have found his way to the bench and Jalen Hurts back in the game. So uh, his escapability on that that play was huge. All right. um, Competition. Uh, Alabama in this conference. Uh, in the conference, I think the, the biggest competitor is going to be the University of Georgia. When you look at Georgia, they were in the national title game last year. While the defense not quite as stout as last year, last year they had 10 returning starters, this year just five, they still have a top 15 defense. And you look at them offensively, yeah, they lose Nick Chubb, they lose Sony Michelle, but DeAndre Swift is solid. They've got good depth in the backfield, the veteran quarterback now and Jake Fromm. And if Georgia can get past South Carolina early on the road, LSU and Death Valley, Florida and Jacksonville. I really think they're going to be favored in all 12 of their games this year. We might just have a rematch of a 12-0 Alabama against a 12-0 Georgia in the SEC championship game. Do I, do I remember correctly you saying, again, I just I read it uh, just a couple days ago, that there are some questions about the Georgia defense, or at least that it's not as experienced. There was something like that. Right. They go from 10 returning starters to five. And last year I felt they had arguably a top two, top three defense in the country. This year they're more like a top 15 defense. Still outstanding, but uh, just a a step back from last year. They lose some some key players off the defensive side of the ball. Okay. Okay. Um, Clemson. Uh, that's your number two team. Uh, tell us, tell us the strength there, what they lost and what they've got. Well, I thought after the season ended last year, Bill, I was like, wow, they're going to have to rebuild that defensive line because they're going to have four defensive linemen leave early for the NFL draft. And then one by one, Farrell, Lawrence, Wilkins, Bryant, they all return for their senior seasons. These guys could all be in the NFL, first, second, or third round draft picks, and said they're all playing defensive line for Clemson. That's the best defensive line in the country, which uh, highlights my best defense in the country. And then offensively, solid running game led by Travis Ennian. They've got a veteran quarterback in Kelly Bryant who may get beat out by Trevor Lawrence. They've got some dangerous receivers and my number 18 rated offensive line. Now, they do have to play Florida State, Texas A&M, Georgia Tech all on the road, but much like Alabama, I think Clemson will be favored in every game this year. And uh, I've got them number two. I'm going to really enjoy watching that defense this year. Okay. Well, what to what do we attribute the four guys staying? Is that Dabo Sweeney, the coach? Uh, it's pretty impressive. You you really did think these guys were going to the NFL. It's a big yeah. question. Sports, you know, how do you keep guys in the in college? He he kept all four of these guys. I, I don't know, am I giving him too much credit? Yeah, I, you know, I'm not sure what the f- determining factor was for each one, and then maybe they got together and talked and said, "Hey, let's all come back." I, I'm not sure how you do it and convince a guy to turn down millions of dollars like that and come back and play in college football. But uh, for college football's sake, I'm pretty happy. Uh, no kidding, absolutely. Biggest challenge to Clemson is, if I'm reading the list right, Miami. Is that correct? Yeah, Miami, uh, and you know, Florida State's going to give them a game when they play them, but I still think Clemson wins that. Uh, when I look at Miami, they're, uh, even a stronger team than last year. Seven returning starters on offense, seven on defense. Each of the units on defense, uh, rank in my top 15 in the front of the magazine. They've got a solid offensive line, a veteran quarterback, a solid running back in Travis Homer. And when you look at their schedule this year, they do play LSU in Arlington, but they'll be favored in that game. Uh, their other road games are against Toledo, Virginia. Probably the trickiest road game at Boston College on a Friday. BC usually will probably turn that into a red bandana game and be all fired up for that. And then they do have to play Georgia Tech and Virginia Tech back to back on the road. Yeah. But I think Miami's got the capability of, of uh, potentially being favored in all their games and uh, could get back to that ACC title game once again. Let's see, they don't play Clemson uh, in the regular schedule, right? Right, do not play Clemson, and they get the uh, Florida State game at home, which is okay. a pretty good factor in their favor. All right, let's go to, um, let's go to Ohio State. 
You've got rank number four. I, I just, if you, if you don't mind, let's talk about, because I got in a discussion with several guys the other night about three teams, uh, in, is it the Big Ten? What do we call it? I forget. Big Ten, yeah. Okay, it's, but it's not ten, right? <laughs> no, it's, 14. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, no, little, little fuzzy math there. As, as, as we say, yeah, we're not, in, we're not in school here. It's Saturday afternoon. Okay. Uh, Ohio State, Ohio State, Penn State, Wisconsin. And then I want to talk about two teams from Michigan. Give me the comparatives on those three schools. Well, I, th- I think you've got yeah five teams that are legitimate title contenders. When I look at Ohio State, I think Dwayne Haskins steps in at the quarterback spot, gives them a more of a downfield passing threat than they had with J.T. Barrett. Maybe not quite the runner, but he's got J.K. Dobbins and Mike Weber to hand off to, an outstanding offensive line, and some dangerous receivers. Defensively, they got a guy named Nick Boza highlighting that unit. Uh, could very well be the number one pick in the draft. He's so the loaded brother. Ohio he's State. The brother, right? now, they do play. They do play three teams on the road this year. That are very good in TCU, Michigan State, and Penn State, but I think they have the edge on all of them, and I've got Ohio State winning the Big Ten this year. The other two schools you talked about, you know, while Penn State loses Saquon Barkley, they do get back Trace McSorley this year, and if you look at their road schedule, they play exactly one team on the road that had a winning record last year, and that is Michigan. So they've got a schedule. They get Ohio State at home, which is big. They get Michigan State at home, which is big, and uh, Penn State's got a chance of contending for the top spot in the Big Ten. And then, how about Wisconsin? Yes. Wisconsin's an even better team than they were last year. They have my number one rated offensive line in the country. And this year, by the way, Bill, I'm very pleased to be on the uh, Joe Moore Award Committee. They previously only accepted you if you were a previous coach of the offensive line or played offensive line. But they're letting me into their exclusive fraternity this year to be a voting member. So I'm uh, very honored to be there. And went over the offensive lines with with the guys on the Joe Moore committee, and Wisconsin has the best offensive line in the country. They've got Jonathan Taylor in the backfield, a 2,000-yard rusher as a true freshman. Uh, Alex Hornibrick, the uh, veteran quarterback. Now, the only thing about Wisconsin, their schedule's tougher this year. Last year, their road games in the Big Ten were against Nebraska, Illinois, Indiana, and Minnesota. None of those teams had a winning record. This year, they play five teams on the road in the Big Ten that were in bowls last year. I'm talking about Iowa, and Kinnick Stadium is very dangerous. Michigan, Northwestern, Penn State, and Purdue. So a much tougher road schedule. I don't think we're going to see Wisconsin get through the regular season unbeaten like they did last year. But do you see right now, I know you want, you want to say a word about Michigan, Michigan State. Uh, well, let's, let's do that, and then we'll talk about the, the Big Ten Championship. Michigan, is it, is it time finally for Michigan to emerge? It may just be because, you know, last year Michigan only had five returning starters. They had one returning starter on defense last year, yet still allowed just 271 yards per game. This year they've got nine starters back on defense, eight starters back on offense. And the one piece that's really been missing for Michigan the last couple of years has been quarterback. Well, they've got Shea Patterson back at the quarterback, the Mississippi transfer coming in at the quarterback position. So it's a loaded Michigan team. They have a few more road tests than the big boys. They have to play North. Northwestern on the road, Notre Dame on the road, Michigan State on the road, uh, and, of course, Ohio State in Columbus. But this is one of the best teams in the country in Michigan. And then Michigan State, you know, last year they were very inexperienced. Number 129 on my experience chart. This year they come in uh, all the way up on the experience chart uh, at number 13. And they've got 19 returning starters. Brian Lewerke is back at QB. They've got L.J. Scott at running back. The defense is almost back in its entire and they play exactly one team on the road all season that had a winning record last year, and that's Penn State. So they've got the schedule to contend and the talent, and they're much more, a much more experienced team. So I really think the Big Ten has five legitimate national title contenders in Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan, Michigan State, and Wisconsin. I'm picking Ohio State, Wisconsin for the Big Ten championship. Is that, That's not crazy, right? Yeah, that, man, that's, that's what I'm siding with as well. So great minds must think alike, huh, Bill? Great minds, great thinkers. That's it. Boy, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, can, I can do it by doing 2% of the homework you do. I'd be lucky. All right, that was part one of my interview with Phil Steele, who is the expert guru on college football. We'll have to leave it there for now, folks. We covered a lot today. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. 
can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett, and you can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We will catch up next week.